Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 65, Cherry Flavored Pez. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by me Hello and welcome back to Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be taking a look at a movie that is now turning 30 years as of this August and is quite possibly one of the seminal 1980s coming-of-age films, even though it takes place about 30 years before its release. And that movie is the Rob Reiner film Stand By Me. Uh, I'm going to be taking a look at the film, taking a look at the Stephen King novella The Body, which is out of his book Different Seasons, upon which this movie is based, and talk a little bit about the soundtrack. But I am not alone uh, on this journey through the woods to find a dead body. I have with me somebody who's been on the show multiple times uh, and is approaching kind of sort of semi-regular guest host spot status with that number of times. Don't tell Stella. Please welcome back to the show, Michael Bailey. How are you doing? I dropped my hamburger in the fire, but I managed to get it back out again. So I'm doing okay. No, I'm I'm very happy to be here. This is uh <laughs> this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh and I have so many things to say about it and so many memories of going to see it. So it's just, you know, I I was really happy when when you asked me, it was just like, Oh yeah, I'll be on standby me. <laughs> So, um, actually, that was one of the first things I do want to talk about is, uh, you know, this movie came out in August 8th, 1986. Yeah, August 8th, 1986. It got a limited release and then it was wide released on August 22nd. Um, it cost $8 million to make. It made $52.3 million. That's a good return on your investment. It is. And uh, just looking at the... Uh, box office mojo page for it just to give you a little bit of context it was number 13 for the year uh number one film of 1986 was top gun cashing in 176 million dollars um crocodile dundee was number two uh at number three so uh, we've got <laughs> number uh 
other movies kind of for that teenage audience. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was at number 10 with $70 million. Just a just a touch on the Canon Films uh, <laughs> oeuvre or whatever you call it. Like Cobra made 49. Cobra made $49 million. You found out today that the touch from Transformers the movie was originally going to be in Cobra. I was listening to that. That's a, You were listening to Rob Kelly's uh, Canon Films no, I just I just stumbled upon that information oh, really? today. Interesting. <laughs> Police Academy three made forty three point five million dollars. Jesus. Uh, anyway, uh, closest thing I could think of that you might associate kind of a a fifties flashback type of, type of movie at number nineteen for the year was Peggy Sue Got Married for <laughs> three million. There's there's one of those movies I watched a thousand times on HBO. <laughs> like every single time it was on, I'd watch it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so uh, we are going to go through the movie. We're going to go through the plot and everything. But before we do that, uh, I did want to ask you, uh, what what do you remember about seeing this movie? Because this is a movie that I first saw on video. I did not see in the theater, but I think you said that you did. Yeah, summer during the summers of 86, 87, and 88, my family would spend a week in Ocean City, Maryland. My aunt had a beach house that she rented out and we would rent it for a week. And it was my first time at the beach. And one day, you know, we did all the usual beach stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. in addition to going to the beach, we went to the boardwalk, we did all this. One day it was raining, nothing else to do. And my mom's like, let's go see a movie. And we went and saw Stand By Me. Now, the only reason I got into this film is because I was with my mother. I was 10 years old at the time. So they're not going to, you know, like let me into this R rated film. And, it's one of those things where even though it was an R-rated film and even though there were a lot of adult themes going on with this thing, this is a movie that, like, I know that these kids were, like, in the movie supposed to be, like, 10, 11 years old. So I, like, identified with them in a yeah. way that I had rarely done before. In a, in a film, it's just like, I you know, like, God, all these kids are like my age. And, you know, Will Wheaton and all them are like two years older than me. But, you know, it's just like I, I wasn't pudgy yet, so I wasn't quite to Vern status. But I kind of related to all of them. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, you know, seeing these kids kind of go through this very adult process. And it had a really huge impact on me. And because of that, I have always loved it. And it was just that, that that experience, you know, going to the films was a big deal when I was a kid anyways. We rarely went to the movies unless it was something huge. Mm-hmm. And when we did, it was always a, like a, a spur of the moment decision. So I, I don't even know if it was a, because you know, that theater I also saw, the next year I saw Space, <laughs> Uh And then in 88, we, we rolled Snake Eyes and saw Cocktail. Ugh. Which was awful. The movie is terrible. <laughs> it's a t- I was I twelve years old and thought it was a oh, terrible. Oh, I know. Film. I like, but I know it has its apologists. <laughs> but good God, that movie is awful. But I think my mom liked it because of the music and all of that. Because you know she was a, a kid in the fifties, so mm-hmm. it, it was one of those things where me and my mom saw a movie. And both got something out of it that, you know, we never talked about it, but it just, you know, it was just one of those experiences where you realize 
that everybody, you know, in your little group is engrossed in what's going on. And the fact that all of these kids, with the exception of River Phoenix, and that's only because he died, went on to other things. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just kind of amazing. So I love this movie. I keep saying that. No, no. I, 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 um, when I sat down to watch this, uh, I went and bought the 25th anniversary Blu-ray off of Amazon because it was on sale for like a ridiculously low price. I think he got it for less, less than $10 because I was just looking to stream it or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll buy the Blu-ray for seven ninety nine or whatever it was. I did not see it in the theater. I don't think at the age of nine, my parents would have would have taken me to an R-rated movie. And it's really, it's it's R-rated because of the more mature themes, but really mostly because of the language. It's not a violent movie in the way that, you know, um, Cobra is or something yeah, like that. I mean, it, it, and it's... It, yeah, and I think it, it was the language. You're right. Yeah, yeah, and there's no nudity or anything. But so, but it is an R-rated movie, and I think my my parents, my parents are still of the age where they would kind of approve what movies. Like, it took me a couple of years before they would let me see Aliens, because you know, and and then, um, and even then, like, and back then, like, I had a couple of friends a, year, a couple of years later who were watching movies like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, and my dad was like, "No, I'm not letting you watch that movie," <laughs> and. Looking back on it, I'm like, uh, you made the right decision. But I saw this for the first time when it was first on video, probably in early 87 uh, or some point in 87. And um, we rented it. I, my parents rented it. My friends and I rented it. And between that and the soundtrack, we'll get to the soundtrack much later. But my parents are like yours where my dad and my mom, they're only about two years apart and they were both – early teens in 1950 this movie takes place in about 1959 and my dad would have been 14 and my mom would have been uh 12 at at the time so so this is definitely their sort of era of of music and culture um a couple of years after first seeing the movie a, a video store Video stores in the mid 80s were like comic stores in the early 90s mm-hmm. they just started popping up everywhere Good Lord, yes. Like, like the local one of the local gas stations started renting videos. And the guy ran it for about maybe three to six months and realized that he needed to just concentrate on his garage and not the the video rental in the garage. And uh, so he sold off a bunch of his movies, and I have the copy of Stand By Me on still on VHS it's in my hand. It has a fifty cents charge if not rewound sticker on it, as well as a warning that says "extreme heat, cold, or sunlight can damage tapes." Um, but what's interesting is that uh, Columbia Columbia put it out on home video, and and uh, it, it you know most. Most of us who have who have VHS collections still, and I'm sure you still have a lot, as or, or some, as well as I do. You know, you're used to the uh, the tape. If it's not one of those cl- plastic clamshell packages, you're used to the tape sliding out of the bottom of the box. This actually has a flap that you have to, and I'll I'll, I'll I will take pictures of this, but that you have to open the flap on on a side of the box and slide the tape out. It's really really odd. My copy of The Big Chill is the same way. Yeah, two things on that. One, (laughs) video stores in the 80s 
you had to like give a credit card where they took a five hundred dollar deposit. Yeah, in most cases. Yeah, because movies were like a hundred dollars a piece. Yeah, even into the nineties, I went to, I was in Baltimore. It Loyola and down the block from us was a video store named Video American that was supposedly like really really good, and was so famous that it's where they shot Serial Mom, <laughs> and okay. it is it's the video store where they shot Serial Mom. So I go in there because I'm like, oh well, you know, we're gonna rent, I'll rent movies because that's what I fucking did all the time, and uh, they wanted like a hundred dollar check to just hold, and I'm like, uh, no. I'm like an 18 year old college student, but but yeah, they did because movies were movies to video stores. They were like between 80 and 100 bucks a piece, which is it why was, they they had like one copy at your local mom and pop video store. Because we had a we had a place in Mountaintop, which we lived before we went back to Allentown, that was right next to one of the grocery stores, and that's where we rented Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. and that's where we bought our bootleg copy of. Ghostbusters, because this guy cared nothing for the legal disclaimers at the beginning of films, <laughs> and would copy a film for you for like twenty bucks. Nice, because he had the two VCRs set up, and that's where it's where I rented Batman the movie from nineteen sixty six. So it's just like I hate to get nostalgic. Well, it's it's actually appropriate given the film we're talking about. Yeah, but video stores were such a, a, a like a. a when we were little kids, they were like like an amusement park. When we were teenagers mm-hmm. and in our 20s, they were essential. That oh, is yeah. where you got your entertainment. Yeah. And the older the video store, the better. Because... Yes, I'm, because they had stuff. <laughs> and, and I've said this, and I don't know how many people agree with me, but like, in my opinion... Two things killed the video store. One of them was the eventual switch to DVD because um, a lot of the stores that were left couldn't afford it. Like the 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 small businesses, it was just a lot where you have to basically start replacing all of your inventory. Yes. If you hadn't adopted it early, you got caught up in a format like the the eventual format change and, and died out. But I, honestly, before that happened, Blockbuster killed the video store because Blockbuster and Hollywood Video to a certain extent came in and were the big box video rental store and they basically Starbucks everything out of there. And they, because they had like a wall of whatever shitty new release was out. And that's what, because they were like, they, you know, they would bank on that. And, and granted, the blockbuster that I eventually had to go to because, you know, the, the small store where I was couldn't keep up and went out of business had its fair share of older movies and stuff when I was interested in them. But, you know, they... Yeah, if you caught one that had been open long enough... Yeah. They had a really good supply. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the blockbuster that I worked at in Pennsylvania... Uh, right before I moved down to Georgia, had a really decent selection of older films. And when I moved here to Fayetteville, I noticed that the blockbuster here had like a lot of older like action films, which mm-hmm. kind of surprised me. So if you if you man either one of two things happened: either they bought like the mom and pop mom and pops uh, inventory, inventory when it yeah. went out of business. 
or they were just around that long because blockbuster you know while we think of it as a 90s thing i did i do think it started up in the 80s if i'm correct i remember the first time i ever went to one when i was like in florida visiting a friend it was the late 80s but yeah, it almost like those big, big. They became like the Barnes and Noble and Borders of video mm-hmm. stores, and Barnes and Noble is still hanging on. But Borders almost became like it was almost like a too big to fail sort of scenario where, uh, you know, it it really did not do very well for that rental industry. But I don't know if they cared too much about it. And then of course, like you know, the death knell was DVD, and then and then streaming services, Netflix. Like you know, the business model has changed where you couldn't open a video store today. I don't know care how nostalgic people are. Them. There's like a few, but they're like yeah. almost novelty places at this point. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a short break now, and then we're gonna come back. Um, I'm gonna have the plot summary, and then Mike and I are gonna get into Stand by Me, the film. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime. Never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby. I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide. Every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence, a time after which we are never the same. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. Oh, man, where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? When the night has come and the land is dark. We interrupt to bring you an update on the search for the missing 12-year-old Ray Brower. Kid's gone. They're never going to find him. Not where they're looking. And the moon is the only light we'll see. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. 
We're going to be on every radio and TV show in the country. I still don't think we should go. If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. I like to go someplace where nobody knows me. We found him. We got dibs. Oh, we better start running, eyeball. They got dibs. There's four of us, eyeball. We just make you move. You're dead. For some, it's the last real taste of innocence. I'm never gonna get out of this town now, my glory. You can do anything you want, man. And the first real taste of life. This is really a good time. The most a blast. But for everyone, it's the time that memories are made of. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand. Stand by me. Stand by me. It's 1986, and a character credited only as the writer, who is played by Richard Dreyfus, but is obviously an older Gordon Lachance, is sitting in his truck, reading the newspaper, and discovers that a childhood friend of his, Chris Chambers, was recently killed in an altercation in a restaurant. The news triggers a memory of the summer when he was 12 years old, and he and his friends hike down the railroad tracks in their small town of Castle Rock, Oregon, to find the body of a dead kid named Ray Brower. That journey is the main plot of the story as we flash back to 1959 and a 12-year-old Gordy, who is played by Will Wheaton, meeting up in his clubhouse with his friends Teddy, who is played by Corey Feldman, and Chris, who is played by River Phoenix. They play cards. I knock. Before I pile of shit, a pile of shit has a thousand eyes. And as they're doing so, Vern, who's played by Jerry O'Connell, comes in out of breath and tells them that he knows where Ray Brower is. Because he'd been searching underneath his parents' house for a jar of pennies he once buried, but he cannot find. And he overheard his brother and another one of his brother Greaser friends talking about how they found Brower's body down the back Harlow Road, but don't want to tell the police because if they do, the police will find out that they got there in a stolen car. The boys make plans to walk down the railroad tracks and find him and come up with cover stories about who is going to be staying with whom that weekend, which is Labor Day weekend and the last weekend before the start of junior high school. For Gordy, though, cover stories don't really matter. His parents barely acknowledge his presence. You see, earlier that year, his older brother Denny, played by John Cusack, had been killed in a car accident. The only interaction, in fact, between Gordy and either of his parents in the present day is with his father, who's played by Marshall Bell, who expresses his disapproval of Gordy's friends, especially Chris, who had been accused of stealing lunch money this previous school year. Gordy meets up with Chris, who shows him the gun that he had swiped from his dad's nightstand. He tells Gordy it's not loaded, but he's lying to him so he can laugh at him when he fires it at a garbage can and it goes off. So they run, they don't get into trouble, but they do wind up running into a gang of older greaser teenagers, those same ones that Vern's brother is involved with, and that includes Chris's brother, Eyeball, and the gang's leader, leader, Ace, who's played by Kiefer Sutherland. They don't get along. Ace even pins Chris to the street and threatens to put a cigarette out in his eye before Chris apologizes for mounting off to him. Later on, the boys meet up with their friends and they start along the train tracks. 
When a train approaches, Teddy stays on the tracks, pretending to attack as if he were a soldier in World War II and then attempting to dodge it. However, Chris forces him off the track before that can happen. They walk on and they come to a junkyard where they get water from the water pump and Gordy is sent to find food at a local store. When Gordy gets back, however, he spots his friends climbing the fence out of the junkyard and he realizes that the owner, Milo Pressman, is now there. And so is his dog, Chopper. Now he said, sick em, boy. But what I heard was, chopper sick balls. <laughs> chopper was my first lesson in the vast difference between myth and reality. Come on, Chubby. I'm gonna beat your ass teasing my dog like that. Yeah, like she tried to climb over his fence and get me fat ass. Don't you call me that, you little tin weasel peckerwood loony son. What did you call me? I know who you are. You're Teddy Duchamp. Your dad's a loony. A loony up in the nut house in Togas. He took your ear and he put it to a stove and he burnt it off. My father stormed the beach in Normandy. He's crazier than a shithouse rat. No wonder you're acting the way you are, with a loony for a father. You call my dad a loony again, and I'll kill you. Loony, loony, loony. Ah! I'm gonna rip your head off and shit down your neck! You! I'm gonna kill you! Come on and try it, you little slimy bastard! He wants you to go over there so he can beat the piss out of you and then take you to the cops! You watch your mouth, smart guy! Let him do his own fighting! Sure, you only outweigh my 500 pounds, fat ass! I know your name. You're the chance. I know all you guys. And all your fathers are going to get a call from me. Except for the loony up in Tokus. Oh, come on, man. Foul mouth, who will master? Son of a bitch. Come back here. Come back here, you hear me? Nobody wakes up well, man. Come back here. My father's daughter, the bitch. I said, come back here. He's daughter, the bitch, you faggot. Come back here. Afterwards, as they press on, the boys come to a railroad bridge that goes across a river and are forced to make a decision on whether or not to cross or go down the river, cross at another point, and come back. Teddy sees no point in going there, the long way, and no problem in crossing the railroad bridge, so he goes. Chris follows, even though he sort of agrees that they don't know when the next train will come. And that next train winds up being sooner rather than later, as after Chris makes it safely over, Gordy and Vern have to run and then jump for their lives to avoid getting killed. As the boys press on, Chris and Gordy have the following very deep conversation about the future. Hey, I got some Winstons. I'll come off my old man's dresser. One piece for after supper. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's when a cigarette tastes best, after supper. Right.
Do you think I'm weird? Definitely. No, man, seriously. Am I weird? Yeah, but so what? Everybody's weird. You ready for school? No. Junior high. You know what that means. The next junior will be split up. What are you talking about? Why would that happen? It's not going to be like grammar school, that's why. If you're taking your college courses and meet Teddy and Vern, while we'll be in the shop courses with the rest of the retards making ashtrays and birdhouses. You're going to meet a lot of new guys. Smart guys. Meet a lot of pussies is what you mean. No, man. Don't say that. Don't even think that. I'm not going in with a lot of pussies. Forget it. Well, then you're an asshole. What's asshole about wanting to be with your friends? It's asshole if your friends drag you down. You hang with us, you'll just be another wise guy with shit for brains. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. You could be a real writer someday, Gordy. Fuck writing. I don't want to be a writer. It's stupid. It's a stupid waste of time. That's your dad talking. Bullshit. Full true. I know how your dad feels about you. He doesn't give a shit about you. Danny was the one he cared about. And don't try to tell me different. You're just a kid, Gordy. Oh, gee, thanks, Dad. Wish the hell I was your dad. You wouldn't be going around talking about taking these stupid shop courses if I was. It's like God gave you something, man. All those stories that you can make up. And he said, this is what we got for you, kid. Try not to lose it. But kids lose everything unless there's someone there to look out for them. And if your parents are too fucked up to do it, then maybe I should. Come on, you guys, let's get moving. Yeah, by the time we get there, the kid won't even be dead anymore. This eventually leads to the boys camping out for the night in the woods and having conversations around the campfire that includes an array of topics. We talked into the night. The kind of talk that seemed important until you discover girls. All right, all right. Mickey's a mouse, Donald's a duck, Pluto's a dog. What's goofy? If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. Goofy's a dog. He's definitely a dog. I knew the $64,000 question was fixed. There's no way anybody can know that much about opera. He can't be a dog. He wears a hat and drives a car. Wagon Train's a really cool show. But did you ever notice that they never get anywhere? They just keep wagon training. God, that's weird. What the hell is Goofy? Gordy then tells his friends a fictional story about Davy Lardass Hogan, a kid who was incredibly fat and he was mercilessly teased for it, and decided to get his revenge by drinking a large bottle of Epicac before a pie-eating contest at the county fair. After several pies, the Epicac does its trick, and he throws up all over the other contestants, who throw up on one another, which causes what Gordy refers to as a bar for Rama. 
Then, after Vern and Teddy drift off to sleep, Chris talks to Gordy about his reputation, about how he did steal the lunch money, but it didn't matter whether or not he did it, because once he was accused, everybody assumed he did, and maybe he gave it back to the lunch lady, or tried to, and maybe she took it, but never put it back in the back in the account, and maybe she had a new dress on that day, the next day. Maybe. After that night, they get up and head out again, although Gordy has a moment by himself for the tracks that he shares with a passing deer while he reads a comic book. It should be noted, by the way, that Ace and his gang have been hanging around, as they do, playing mailbox baseball, giving each other weird gang tattoo things with, like, dirty razors and, and just getting up to general mischief and Vern's brother and his friend who I should note at this point are being played by Casey Zamasco and Gary Riley who played Dave in summer school well eventually they do confess because they can't keep a secret where Ray Brower's body is and that gang decides they're going to go head out and find it the boys however will find it first but not before cutting through woods and walking through what they think is just kind of a large puddle but ends up being like a small pond a small pond with leeches. A small pond with leeches that get everywhere, including on Gordy's crotch. And he faints as a result. When they find Ray Brower, he's dead in the woods, having not only been hit by the train and flung into the brush, but not completely out of his shoes. This eventually leads to Gordy breaking down about his own grief over his brother and his conflict with his parents. Gordy? Why did you have to die? What's the matter with Gordy? Nothing. Why don't you guys just go over there and look for some branches, okay? Okay. Why did he have to die, Chris? Why did Denny have to die? I don't know. It should have been me. Don't say that. It should have been me. Don't say that, man. I'm no good. My dad said it. I'm no good. He doesn't know you. He hates me. He doesn't hate you. He hates me. No. He just doesn't know you. He hates me. Someday, Gordy. You might even write about us guys if you ever get hard up for material. <laughs> Guess I'd have to be pretty hard up. Yeah. 
Ace and the gang then show up, and the two groups begin arguing over who is going to get credit for claiming the body. Chris and the boys call dibs, but Ace decides to prove his point by pulling a knife and telling them to get out of there. Gordy fires the gun in the air and says that nobody is taking him, that Ace needs to get in his car and go. Ace doesn't take him seriously, but when Gordy isn't putting the gun down, he decides to cut his losses and leaves. I should point out that Gordy does threaten him with the line, Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. In the end, the boys decide to call the police anonymously and head back down the tracks toward town. Here the narration picks up again, with the writer giving us the stories of Vern and Teddy after that weekend, who drifted apart from Chris and Gordy through junior high and high school. Vern got married, had kids, and is a forklift operator at a lumberyard. Teddy, who wanted to go into the army just like his dad had been, was rejected because of his eyesight, and he now does odd jobs around Castle Rock, and he has also served some time in jail. Chris, on the other hand, he took the honors classes with Gordy, and he eventually made it out of Castle Rock, and he became a lawyer. We then learn the circumstances of his death. He stepped between two people who were arguing at a fast food place, and he attempted to make peace. It didn't go well. One of them pulled the knife and stabbed Chris to death. The writer, who's now back in his office, is being bugged by his own son and his son's friend to take them swimming, and he says he'll be there in a minute. Not before adding the movie's final words to his computer screen. I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? I wanted to before we got into the thing, uh, just before we got into the kind of a, our our thinking of of what we thought think of this movie and and the scenes that we like and, and don't like and things like that. I was looking up, uh, you know, I was going through the IMDb profile as you do, um, and and early on, uh, before we went to break, you were talking about how the uh, the main cast members of this movie, a lot of them, even River Phoenix, when uh, even though he he died very prematurely um went on to bigger and better better things because you know your 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 five main cast members are uh will wheaton who shut up wesley who's still will still kicking around you know river phoenix is obviously dead but Corey felt Corey feldman is still around he's worked steadily he's made shit yes. movies but he this was part of his rise to fame because the only other movies that I can think of prior to this would have been Lucas and the Goonies because I think the Lost Boys the Lost Boys was and seven Friday the Thirteenth Part Four that's four. right I forget he was in that um, Jerry O'Connell who would go on to in fact this is one of Jerry O'Connell's like very very first roles ever in anything. Mm-hmm. And he would go on to My Secret Identity. Yes. Followed by Sliders and, and a number and, of other And let, let me tell you how 
much Jerry O'Connell, as much as I love him as an actor, just completely let me down because I see in this uh, in this movie he's a short, heavy set kid, mm-hmm. and I was short, and I started getting pudgy around age twelve. I don't know why it just happened. So when I saw him in this and then saw him a year, you know, like two years later on my secret identity, I was like, oh, he's starting to shoot up. Oh, he's starting to get in good shape. That's obviously going to happen to me. (laughs) So that never happened uh, Uh... at all. But that does not diminish the fact that my secret identity was... How do I want to say this? It was appointment television for me in '88 through '91. Mm-hmm. I it, they they blocked it uh, where I lived with Superboy, so it was Superboy on Saturday afternoon, and mm-hmm. then My Secret Identity. Ah, so but you know he he's one of these actors that had a really good career. You know, Sliders. Yeah, Sliders uh, was a good show for its first. Uh... The couple of first couple of seasons that I watched, I, I kind of lost track of it after a while. But uh, he was also on a show called Crossing Jordan, uh, reprising a role from the Vegas. Huh. Uh, like he was on Vegas, Las Vegas, as yeah, it was called, yeah. and Crossing Jordan, which is kind of weird. And as <laughs> he was in GI Joe Renegades, uh, he did the voice of Barbecue, which huh. kind of fascinates me, but. What I will always go to of why he set such an unre- unrealistic example of somebody who was just born like two years older than me, and I, you know, like like and you know talked about collecting comics when he was a kid and all that. Yeah, he married Mystique, <laughs> and they turned that into a gag on the Family Guy parody of this, which was narrated by Richard Dreyfus. And as the Vern character was walking away, Richard Dreyfus goes, "Yeah, fat kid, you know, uh, or uh, Vern, you know, married Rebecca Romaine. No, seriously, the pudgy kid married Rebecca Romaine. So Jerry O'Connell, because of that, and as much as I love him, and as much as I love him as an actor, will always be that dude in high school that was always that much better than you." Uh. You know, and of all the of all the characters in this movie, that when I watched this movie when I was nine and ten, and now I watch now, I, in many ways, was Gordy Lachance, the skinny kid who was. I mean, thankfully, I did not have a dead sibling. My parents knew I existed, but the kind of the oddball of the group who was way more introspective than anybody else. And, and the one who was probably more creative than the other guys. Um, and that sort of, and I, I looked a lot like him when I was little. I can see that. Yeah. I've seen pictures of you when you were a kid, you and Will Wheaton. Were, yeah. So and, were on par with each other. Yeah. So, um, and, and you know, Gordy never grew up to be cool. He grew up to be Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Gordy grew up to have a wife. And yeah, yeah, he, he grew up to have sort of the stability and success in his life. Um, 
whereas Chris, uh, you know, Chris is the great tragedy of this movie because at the end of the movie, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, he um, he's he dies, um, but he had he had gotten himself out of that awful situation yeah. of his life. And in the movie, he had died just recently. Yeah, because the movie opens with Richard Dreyfus in the truck. Uh, you know, like looking at the headline of the uh, newspaper, of the, yeah, of the newspaper, and then it goes into and and I think Richard Dreyfus is probably the unsung hero of this film mm-hmm. because his narration is amazing. Yeah, because he doesn't. Um, he gives it the right amount of path pathos. Pathos. Um, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't over do it in terms of trying to make it funny. Uh, I mean, a, there would be a, a show would come on ABC about two years after. Yes. This, I was about to say wonder years. And, and I think, and to, even though I don't think that, I don't know if there's any real connection and I have to look this up. I want to say that in some way, shape or form, this influence that shows getting greenlit. Uh, because it was such a big hit, it was because there was this there was this huge wave of fifties and sixties nostalgia that came into the early, to the late eighties uh, through this, and then through Dirty Dancing, and then through then you have Good Morning Vietnam toward the end of the um, the decade, and there was a lot of resurgence of this nostalgia that had been there, you know, through the early seventies and stuff. But the Wonder Years comes on, and they have a very similar structure where an older version of the main character is essentially narrating through a voiceover. And in that case, it's Daniel Stern, but they played that more for less because it was a sitcom. So they was Stern was a lot more, uh, of a smart ass than, than Dreyfus, but yeah, Dreyfus, uh, at Dreyfus's credit. Dreyfus does not go full Richard Dreyfus. No, he is. He he's, he's much more of the laid back. Yeah. Uh, kind of understated Richard Dreyfus. Unlike, you know, the, the, Jaws, mm-hmm. uh, or what's another good example Amer- like a uh, Stakeout? Yeah, or American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. Another, he's you know he's Kurt Henderson. Oh, granted, he was about eighteen then, but yeah, Jaws are when he's kind of going crazy manic in Close Encounters because Dreyfus is one of those. Um, Dreyfus can do the slow burn to the point where then he just pops. <laughs> <laughs> really mm-hmm. well and that was something that was always good about about him but uh, but no he does he, you're right he's this sort of steady hand in the narration and the person i give a lot of credit for this movie to is the director because rob reiner um, yeah. directed this uh, and, and rob reiner to a generation a little older than us was meathead from all in the family but i was looking at rob reiner's resume recently just in prep for this and between between about 1984 and I'd say the mid 90s, he was hitting it out of the park. He had Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, uh, which is an underrated movie in my opinion. Um, this this and then his next movies were uh, The Princess Bride, which is um, is one of those other movies yeah. that are, that are just part of our you know, oh yeah, cultural yeah. heritage. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm. Misery, A Few Good Men. Yeah, and, it's just like holy crap. And, and it's not until <laughs> it's not until about the mid '90s when he does stuff like North that 
the bloom's kind of off the rose. I don't really know what he's done recently. And I, I'd have to look through it. I'm sure he hasn't like you know completely gone the Cameron Crowe route of like you know are you ever going to do a good movie again? But um, sorry, Cameron Singles, Crowe's out. Dude, but, that was the last time. Yeah, <laughs> no, almost famous. Almost famous is Cameron Crowe's last great movie, and that was 15, 16 years ago. But yeah, Singles is. <laughs> That's another tangent for another. Well, that was already an episode, but but Reiner's got this like, and and they talk about um, if you ever get the chance to sit down and anybody gets the chance to sit down and, and watch any of the special features on the anniversary Blu-ray, they interview him and Will Wheaton and, and Corey Feldman and Kiefer Sutherland and, and a bunch of people, and um, all the actors to a person. And these aren't the first people I heard it because John Cusack was saying this about Reiner in uh, The Sure Thing. They refer to him as an actor's director, you know, the type of person who, having been an actor himself, knows, really, really connects with his cast and gets these good performances out of them. And you can see that in this film because this film is risky to do mm-hmm. uh, because you are relying on four protagonists who are 12-year-old boys to carry a film that is very, very serious um, and if you have the wrong people in the roles, or or they just do it the or it's acted the wrong way, it doesn't work. Um, yeah, and 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 this is the movie that caused me to never hate Will Wheaton as Wesley. I knew Will Wheaton as Gordy before Star Trek: The Next Generation yeah. came on, so I know that I watched this pretty soon after it came out on video. That's because that's how I knew because it was. I saw the um, like the the preview commercials for Star Trek: The Next Generation. They were like Wesley Crusher, the young genius, or whatever. It's like, oh, that's the kid from Stand by Me. But and, yeah, and, and it's kind of funny when you when you look at the ages of these of these actors. Uh, River Phoenix was as old as my eldest sister, mm-hmm. who at this point was sixteen years old. So he was like 15 looking 12 yeah. when he did this film. Uh, Will Wheaton was like four years older than me, but looked 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, Corey Feldman was a year younger than River Phoenix, and Jerry O'Connell was only two years older than me. So I look at these kids, and I'm just like, you know, they don't look like kids. I mean, they don't look like the, the two older ones don't look like teenagers. You know, when they, yeah. and, and a lot of that's makeup, you know, when you shave a kid, you know, like, like River Phoenix's head and give him that close crew cut, mm-hmm. uh, which he would never have again. No. Um, he would, he had the floppy nineties hair before that was even really a thing. Mm-hmm. So kind of shows what a trendsetter, but when you, when you had these four actors, uh, you know, you cast Corey Feldman as the abused kid. Yeah. And it just totally works because that was his effing life at the time. Yeah. And, you know, I recently learned that they had to shut production down for a day because Jerry O'Connell snuck off and hung out with these people and ate a bunch of pop pop brownies and got (laughs) unbelievably wasted. Which is really funny because you think, how did he get in with those people? Look how he looked in this film. (laughs) You know, he had the, 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 the 50s crew cut too, but... I think it's because you had all, you know, Will Wheaton talks about the fact that Rob Reiner cast the actors to the character because that's basically who they were. River Phoenix was a little, was 15 at the time, so he could kind of bring that older, but River Phoenix, you know, had a very unconventional upbringing. So Mm -hmm. 
he would have that perspective that Chris Chambers had. Yeah. That, you know, just like looking at his friend Gordon and going, you're like Chris Chambers knew that this wasn't going to be it for Gordy. Yeah, they had Gordy didn't know that. Yeah, they had this great conversation um where Gordy is just kind of Gordy's kind of doing this sort of like stressed out I call it the stressed out honors kid lament of like I kind of wish I was stupid. Yeah. So that I didn't have all this pressure on me. And not exactly, but he's basically like, I'm, I don't want to take the smart classes. I want to go hang out with you and Vern and Teddy. And Chris is like, shut your mouth. You're doing this because you've got more potential than anybody else in that I know. And, and I think this, they're like on the tracks and, and Vern and, and Teddy are like ahead of them, either like, you know, punching at each other or talking about like, something there's like a contrast in the conversation that they're having. Yeah. They're talking about who would win in a fight between Superman Superman and Mighty Mighty Mouse. Mouse. That's what it was. And Teddy through Corey Feldman says the most brilliant geek argument ever. How could they fight? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman's a real guy. (laughs) And so they're, well, you know, let's take it like that for a second, because, you know, as you, as you go through the kids, you go through the deep, you know, you, you get deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. Vern is kind of a simple-minded kid. Yeah. You know, when when we see him, he's he's looking for pennies that he buried <laughs> under the house that he lost, that his mother threw the map out to. Yeah. So this kid is under, like, in the heat of summer, under the, under the porch where there's insects and probably rodents, and he's just digging and digging and digging. And when he comes up, he can't remember the knock. And you just kind of feel bad for him because you know that this is going to be the guy who's working at the mill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like has a fat wife and six fat kids. Yeah. Probably hates himself. Yeah. And then, and then you have Teddy, who is just, he's gone. He never had a chance. No. It- uh and and it's one of the greatest things of filmmaking magic that you don't notice his ear until Rob Reiner tells you to. Yeah. The the scene where um it's the junkyard scene where he's like, I know how you got the ear or whatever and yeah. Well it's even before that, it's when they're in the treehouse where through the narration Gordy says you know, his father took his... Yeah, that's know, right. It's ear to a stove and, and burned off. But then you almost forget about it for a while, yes. too. And it doesn't disappear or anything. It's there the no, whole it's, film. No, it's always there. If you look there. at it, but you, you do forget about it. And you get these little scenes of how messed up in the head he is, uh, you know, especially with the, uh, the, the train dodge at the beginning mm-hmm. when they're setting out. And a lot of times when you have that kind of slightly crazy friend at that age and he's going to do something like that, you know in the back of your mind he's kind of – he's messing with you. Yes. But the way Feldman does Teddy in that scene and and Chris is the one who picks up on it, you don't know if he's going to – 
get out of the way. Like he plays it in such a way that you you actually do get a little scared because you're like, and you understand why Chris gets kind of scared and pull wrestles him off the tracks because of you're like, I don't know if Teddy was going to jump out of the way of the train because he's just that like mentally ill essentially. Um, and because of and it's not things. his fault, no. either, which is the sad part. And then you start thinking, you know, when I watched this as an adult, I start thinking about kids I knew in high school or when I was little and think of the crazy things they did. And now I'm like, well, were they doing that because they were getting beat at night? Yeah. You know, their their dad was crazy and burned his ear off to the point where he had to have a hearing aid. Yeah. and I mean, it's just, it's just so sad. Yeah. And then Chris... Chris, um, Chris is essentially the one who was older before anybody else was older. You know, yes. he, he, he's not living completely on his own, but you just get the sense that his parents are basically absent because his dad's drunk and, you know, beats him beats and, him his, and you know, his mom's always leaving to get out of the way of the, the, the drunk abuser in the house. Yeah. So he's learned to fend for himself and and that's made him you know it's made him tough he's also got an older brother who beats him just as mm-hmm. beats him just as horribly as his dad is and he sees you know he sees in his father he sees in his brother his father all over again he knows that eyeball is going to grow up to be the same drunk that's sitting at home right now and when he gives Gordy that tongue lashing it's so much also him not completely relying on Gordy to get him out of there but that like almost like in the back of his mind thinking like you know Gordy's the person I need to be with Gordy's going to be my 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 rock he's going to be the one I who's going to be there for me during this, you know, as I as I try to, you know, because I need to do something with my life where I'm, I don't want to like my brother or my father. But he's also the kid that because of his home life, he watches adults. Mm-hmm. And there's there there's two great breakdown scenes between uh, one with Chris and one with Gordy. Yeah. And Chris, it, you know, it's moved from where it is in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in the novella, but it, the, there's a point in the film where they're all taking watch because they hear noises and they're 12 years old and you do stupid shit when you're 12 and you, you hear noises at night. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Gordy wakes up and sits with Chris and Chris starts telling him about the fact that, you know, who stole, there was this scandal of who stole the milk money. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Chris had stolen the milk money like everyone thought he did. Yeah. But he went to give it back. He gave it back to a teacher. That teacher never turned it in and showed up with a new dress. So it's like this whole thing where he tried to do the right thing, you know, and and fess up to it. And he saw that this adult completely let him down. Yeah. And it's just like this, this, this shattering moment for him. But at the same time, he's the one... That when he tells Gordy that he's not, that you're going to do these classes, and Gordy turns around and goes, thanks, Dad. He goes, I wish to hell I was your, your dad. dad, because I would never let you do that. Yeah. Because Gordy's Gordy's in a completely, not as physically 
in you know in danger of his family. Like the, there's this great there's this great line that Dreyfus completely sells, where he's just like you know where you know he's he's sitting here defending his dad who put his ear to the the stove, mm-hmm. and I could give a crap about my, my dad. dad. And he only hit me once, and that's for eating bleach. Yeah. It's just like it's like one of those vivid moments in, in your head. But Gordy is the forgotten one. Yeah, he's 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 neglected now because his parents have not gotten over the grief that Denny died. Mm-hmm. But his his older brother. But even before then, because they'll flash back to to denny and and john cusack's in what like two scenes three scenes and damn near walks off with the entire film. oh yeah I mean, it's just amazing to watch because yeah, he's because <laughs> cusack cusack can could do especially back in the 80s could do this sort of like really energetic and and uh that older brother type and he's like really just he he is he more than in the in the novella, and the relationship between Denny and Gordy in the novella is a lot more um, realistic. Strained, yeah, or or like Denny kind of like you know Gordy's kind of around because the, the there's a huge age difference between the two of them. But in this one, he's like tussling his hair, and and there's a scene at the dinner table that I think yes. really feeds into like you know how Gordy thinks of his parents and stuff, where um, Dad keeps talking football is it football right it's like yeah yeah there there, there's gonna be a scout at the game and the mom's just completely obsessed with him and this girl and denny's like gordy wrote a story did you hear the story gordy so it's so even before denny's death gordy was the invisible boy yeah because he's like can i have the potatoes can i have the potatoes and it's finally denny that hands it to him yeah like Denny sees what's going on, which is why in the film his death is so much more of a tragedy. Yeah, because Gordy lost the one adult figure in his life that gave a crap about him, and it's not that his parents didn't not care about him, but there is a difference between putting a roof over your kid's head and making sure they're fed and making sure that they're kind of staying on the on on, on the right, you know the right path mm-hmm. and not, and barely acknowledging that they're there because his mother ignores him. His father, when he goes to ask if he could go and they come up with like the greatest 12 year old plan ever where <laughs> we're, we're all going to say we're at Vern's house. Vern's going to say he's here. Yeah. And it, you know, like today, today this would be a lot easier because they would all have smartphones and could text. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, and they would also have Google Maps to, you know, w- walk them to where they were going. But still, they, you know, he goes to ask his dad and his dad, you know, it's just like, well, who are you going with? He's like, well, Chris and Vern and Teddy. He's just like, oh, great. A thief and two, two thieves. thieves. Yeah. And it's just like, great. The one time you pay attention to your kid, it's to downplay. Now, to be fair, in a couple of years, Vern and Teddy are not the kids Gordy needs to be hanging around with. And, and he and he won't be, actually. That's something yeah. he emphasized at the end. He says by the time they were in high school, they just were two faces that they passed in the hall. And his father at one point does, at the, in that conversation, I think he says, like, why can't you have friends like Denny's? Or, yeah, and it's just like, so you want to punch this guy anyways. Yeah. Not the least of which that Marshall Bell, who plays his father, 
is that guy that is in every movie in the eighties that's an asshole. Yeah. He's not quite to William Atherton status. No, no. <laughs> but he was he was the the sadomasochistic gym teacher in Friday uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Two. Mm-hmm. He was one of the, the hitmen in twins. I mean this yeah. is just what this guy did. He's he is a lot more charming than William Atherton. Yes. William Atherton's a sleaze ball. Yeah, like like he in. just exudes it. Yeah. Even when even when he's like Professor Sleaze Ball in Real Genius. Yeah, and he's still a scumbag. And and Marshall Bell he's a prick to his kid, yeah. but he whereas his wife and his wife when they show her hanging up the uh clothes on the line, he's like, "Mom, have you seen my canteen or whatever?" She's just a zombie, essentially, you know, just staring off into space, almost catatonic. And his dad looks exhausted. Just yeah, he he does that scene and it's it's a short scene, but he does that scene with all of the weight of everything on him. And he can't and he's but he's so mean to him. Yeah, it's just. And, and then there's the nightmare he has, which is different from the novella, mm-hmm. where you know they're at Denny's funeral, and his father looks at him and goes, "It should have been you. you." Yeah. And his father probably had that thought because he's that much of a prick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 Gordy knows it, and that's that's when Gordy has that breakdown. Yeah. And and it's like these kids, like who are. You know, between like fourteen and you know, or between between like twelve and sixteen years old, pulling out these performances mm-hmm. that are just heartbreaking. I mean, Vern's stupid, yeah, but Jerry O'Connell sells that. And and you know what? Here's the thing: I almost believe that the older Vern was a lot like Jerry O'Connell's character and can't hardly wait. <laughs> Trip McNeely. Yeah, that, that it's just like he plays that part well. Yeah, yeah. And you have to have a lot of self awareness to play a part like that well. Yeah. So I, I just I cannot say enough good things about these kids who act like adults, but then they're sitting around the campfire. And and I can't really say like like they're acting like kids because you know we 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 have very similar conversations around a microphone, uh, you know, on a regular basis. True. But it's just like you know because they keep going back to is Goofy a doll? <laughs> Which you know what? When you start thinking about it, you start thinking about yeah. it, and then you realize that's not a stupid conversation to have. And that's the that's the conversation that's the conversation between the four of them that keeps coming up. I think that's probably the most remembered. Yeah. Um, in fact, on one of the versions of the movie poster, it's the line, um, if I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Cher- it's Pez, cherry-flavored Pez, is on one of the versions of the poster. And and the things they say to each other, like like he, he calls, at one point they call Teddy a four-eyed pile of shit. shit. <laughs> pile of shit. Has, has a thousand that? eyes. And, you know, they're like, and, and, and they're like, grow up. I don't grow up. Uh, oh god we used to say that i don't shut up i i i I don't shut up i grow up and when i look at you i throw up and then gordy says and then your mom comes around the corner and looks up and that's what pretty much passed for you know like funny discourse at 12 years old yeah well yeah 
I, there's another conversation, and I was I was in my notes. I I made I made a um, a note because there's a lot of this movie that feels like being twelve, um, or that captures being twelve in a way that is uh, rarely, if ever, done. Because twelve years old is an odd age because you're not a teenager yet, obviously, but you're not a little little kid anymore. Yeah. And there's a conversation in the junkyard they have about a net Funicello. Yes. Where he says, um, the, have you been watching the Mickey Mouse Club lately? I think Annette's tits are getting bigger. Yeah, the A and the E are. That is one of the most realistic conversations in the movie to me because when you're 12, this is just going to come off sounding sense. You know what tits are. You know what? Yeah, you, you know what breasts are. But you don't know what to do. Do if, with the, if like, you are if you are pointed in a certain direction, you know what they are, and you know that you are attracted to them. Exactly, but you don't. But you you laugh. Well, kids today probably. Have but but so, okay, but, but but still. But 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 when we were kids, and when these kids were kids, you know that was like the great mystery. Yeah, it was. It was a net on the television. It was going um going to a store, and there were posters, and there was like you know. Samantha Fox poster and you're like okay um but because when you're 12 like sex is this you know you by and large know what sex is um depending on on where you grew up you probably have and you probably have seen the film strip about the mechanics but it's still this abstract concept you know like, and she would be the one that they would be attracted to because she was kind of the the, the 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 prepubescent girl that was on one of the most popular shows that kids watched in the late fifties. Exactly, it's like yeah. it's like a show uh, contemporary to us when we were around that age, like like a Saved by the Bell and looking at Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Yeah, because you can't you can't go to um, why am I forgetting her name? The other girl on Saved by the Bell. Uh, Elizabeth Berkley. You can't go to Elizabeth Berkley because Annette Funicello didn't leave the Mickey Mouse Club and then go do an NC-17 film yeah. where she exposed everything. Yeah. So Tiffany Amber Thiessen, I think, is the better because she went from from Saved by the Bell to, like, what was it, Beverly Hills 90210? Yes. So that's that's a more appropriate comparison yeah her or the other one yeah exactly her or uh Alyssa milano or like you know the 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 girls you would see on tv who were roughly your age or slightly older than you were and but yeah um, like, danica mckeller is is probably the best example that i yes think. yes and um and it's this and and the movie this movie is very very much about boys it's there's there's like one there's like two women in the entire movie. Um, his mother, his mother, and the waitress who comes out when they when they have the gun. When they have the gun behind the diner. Some and, of the best film editing ever, by yeah. the way. Jesus, because because they have the gun, 
Gordy asks if it's loaded. He goes, of course not. It goes off, and it jump cuts to bo- like a like a close-up on both of them, and they yell, Jesus, and run away. And it's just like, that, yeah. is so you, you, that is so what you are at 12 years old. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's kind of like watching The Monster Squad, almost. Mm-hmm. Which came out around the same time, or at least I know I was watching around. About a year later it came out, and then it was on like HBO all the time. Mm-hmm. But no, it's just... Like, like these are the. It, it's really amazing to think that Rob Reiner found four actors to carry his coming of age film, mm-hmm. which is kind of like capturing lightning in a bottle. Yeah, and and you feel the coming of age in this movie in a way that you might not, um, because of what happens when they find the body. Yes. Uh, because, you know, or their reaction to it, how quiet they are about it afterward. And, and then you get this epilogue that, you know, you really do feel like something's changed between the four of them, but yet at that very moment, they're not exactly sure what it was. Yeah. It's like, there's a moment when they're going where it's like, well, should we be having a good time? I mean, we're going to go see a dead Dead kid, but then they, they settle right back into, you know, Gordy tells his story. Uh, where you know the pie eating contest with Lardass, where Swamp Thing is is in it. Can I so. can I tell you that for years I couldn't watch that scene? Well, it's 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 a vomitorium. Yeah, so I it, when I was a little kid, I, I I still to this day do not do well with people throwing up in front of me. Um, I've gotten over it. I have to because I have a child. But, yeah, I've got I've got dogs. Yeah, so bodily but, functions don't bother me anymore. But when I was younger, like I I would just kind of quietly, you know, turn my turn away from that scene because I could not watch that scene. Well, the thing that I love about that scene that I only realized later is, uh, you know, you have the kid that played Lardass who did nothing else, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, but you have like all the other people that you have uh, the the uh, the DJ. You know, it's uh, we got racks and racks of the best on wax. Uh, yeah. And then you have Bill Travis, who's played by Dick Durock, <laughs> uh, who was Swamp Thing. <laughs> yes, he was in both movies and the live-action television series, and he was the Evil Hulk. So now that I know that, I can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And it's a funny story of a, of of the picked-on kid. Basically, this is what would happen if a Star Wars kid had enough of the internet shit. Oh, the, decided he was yes. going to get revenge. Yes, and yeah. it's a funny story because it points to Gordy's, you know, ability to tell a story. And I, there's also these little things. It's just like his his name's uh, his name's Billy Hogan. Oh, like Charlie Hogan. If he had a brother, it's just like shut up, Vern. Vern. <laughs> so, and then they're not satisfied with the ending. So of course Teddy says he goes home. And gets a gun and kills, and kills everybody. <laughs> so it's it's just it's just an amazing dynamic between these four actors. I mean, to the yeah. point where the one, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish, you know, if 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 a woman watched this and got something out of it, but there's something about the scene where they discover the leeches. Oh God. Yes. And then he's got the leech in his, you know, in his, his underwear. underwear. Yeah. And he comes up with blood. I'm sorry. If you're male, that hits you in a very particular way. Oh, it does. And, and it's, 
and it, you know, you're at, you're still at that stage of immaturity where it, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it, he faints as a result and it's just, you know, it's, it, it's funny, but at the same time, it is just, it makes you squirm in your seat even 30 years after seeing it for the very first time. And it's kind of funny because it's, Gordy that really steps up at the end. Yes. Be- because, you know, we, we have, and we really haven't talked about them all that much. We have the older kids. Yes. The, uh, Vern's older brother mm-hmm. played by, played by Casey uh, Samasgo. Is that how you pronounce that? I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, who is a bully in this. And we were talking about this before we started recording. He's not a bully. No, he's, he's the guy that knocks the bully out. It, it's three o'clock, three o'clock high. high. Or he's the, he's the romantic in young guns or he, yeah. or he's uh he was really good uh, in a film. I recently rewatched uh, Biloxi blues. I haven't seen that in a long time where he was, he was one of the, the men in Matthew Broderick's yeah. thing. And he just, and here's another like murderers row of people that didn't necessarily have like a great career, but you watched important films with them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Gary Riley plays Charlie Hogan and he will always be the dude who hung out with chainsaw in, in summer school in summer school. Uh, you had, uh, Bradley Gregg, who played Eyeball Chambers, who was yeah. Chris's older brother. If you look at this kid, you're like, God, he looks familiar. It's because he was the he was one of, he was the kid that Freddie walked like a marionette oh, in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So and and yeah. then and then uh, Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland, Sutherland, who is whose next big role would be the lost boys where yes. he's playing like the vampire version of, of ace. Yes. Meryl. He's so, he is, he is so cold. Yeah. In this, and that's so key to this character. Cause the character is essentially the closest thing we have to a villain in the movie, but he is not a psycho in the sense that he's, you know, he's not Cesar Romero, you know, the, the, no, but that he, sort he's of, a sociopath. Oh, he is. And he is this, this whole closer to me. This, this, there's two scenes that, um, that I, that I think of as one is when they're, when they're drag racing and it's like, um, and, and, uh, the two kids think they're going to beat ACE because there's a logging truck coming right at ACE because ACE is in the wrong lane and Ace just keeps going and he's going and he's steady and he's steady. And the logging truck finally swerves off the road and loses its load. And Ace and the, the guys in the next car are just like looking at like, what the hell just happened? And Ace takes that opportunity to push ahead and win the drag race. Yeah. It's like, I, I didn't lose. And and you're like, it. you're just kind of like, oh, crap. And then the scene at the end where they all find the body. And, you know, because um, he's like, Vern, because Vern's brother's, Vern, you, you was under the porch, you, you know, son of a whore. Or, yeah. And, and but Ace that whole time is just he I don't think Kiefer Sutherland's voice changes for that entire no, scene. He's going to blind Chris Chambers. Yes, they're going to. And, and they would just as soon kill these kids as look at them. Yeah. 
and it's Gordy that steps up with the gun, and Gordy would have shot him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one part where Ace kind of breaks because he realizes this kid's crazy. You know, he's got the gun. He cocks it. He's like, oh, you can't do that. And then there's that moment where it's just like, this isn't over. Yeah. Like, okay, I've lost now. And, and, and Gordy has one of the great one of the great lines of the film, why don't you go home and fuck your mother some more? <laughs> just like... Suck just like, my fat one, you cheap dime store. Or hood. I mean, it's just like these... It's this ultimate badass moment for yeah. this kid. After a moment where they find the body of um, of the kid... It's heart wrenching, which yeah. is a heart wrenching scene because they don't. Because what Reiner note, what I noticed Reiner does with that scene is that it's quiet. Mm-hmm. There's not. I don't think there's much of a score. I, I think it's just it's quiet and the body is just you know Dreyfus does the narration, and it looks. I, I've never found a dead body at random. I'm sorry, but it looks like. That's what it would be. Like the kid, his eyes are open. Yeah, the real the the reality comes crashing down on them, in a or or the the, the heavy weight has nothing to do with Miss Marty, but the 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 weight that it's heavy, and it's heavy in a way that feels like this is actually happening, and it's not just a movie that you're watching. And this movie has some fantastical things in it, and it has some moments that are absolutely laugh-out-loud funny as well. I mean, I still laughed out loud at Chopper's sick balls. Oh, yeah. The, 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 narr- the... the way the narration is done. Yeah, what I heard was Chopper, sick balls, and just, like, losing it when he, when he says that. It's kind of funny because there aren't too many adults in this film. No. Uh, we have the the waitress that comes out and accuses them of lighting firecrackers. Mm-hmm. We have Gordy's parents. You've got the guy played by Bruce Kirby who owns the store that uh, Gordy buys the food from. Mm-hmm. And there you get the sense that you know, you know, he's asking him about his brother and saying how sad that you know that he's. Uh, you know, that he's, you know, that he's dead. And he's just like, well, what do you do? He's like, I don't know. Uh, that sequence is very different in the novella. And that guy's much more of a prick in the novella. Mm-hmm. But it's the, you know, it's something my sister said to me when we were watching this movie once. My, my, my sister Jane, who's closest in age to me. And we were a couple years older and we were watching it. And you have the the guy that owns the, the dump. Yes. That is just berating this small child and my sister said he's really a bad person mm-hmm. if that's what he says to a kid yeah and he because he he just he pushes teddy's buttons mm-hmm. and is like pointing out that you know it's like you know your 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 father's a loony yeah up until sorry, and he goes loony loony, and it's just like holy shit! I want to kick this guy's ass. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the um, and that's that's played. I think we'll, we'll get into the the body in a moment because that this played pretty much the same way as yeah. as it is in the body. I like that the general store owner is a little nicer in this because, again, he, the guy's uncomfortable, 
And yeah. he, he spouts something about the Bible says this, which is totally somebody who doesn't know what to say in that situation. What so they're they going back say. on a Bible passage. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, he just, he doesn't know what to say. So he's just trying to like, you know, in the same way that somebody would say, well, I'll pray for you or something. And then, and, and it, so that works really, really well. Like, you know, because, um, cause Gordy isn't holding Caulfield yet. He's not constantly angry or anything. And he's not pissing off every adult that's around him. Or, or, you know, even though he's kind of coming across a few people who were, you know, a little less shady. I mean, that, that junk junkyard, or, or you're right, is just, he's a bad person. I, I want to get the body a second. I just, there's just one little thing, and I, I I don't know where to put this in, but I was like, I just, um, like I said, I, I watched the Blu-ray, and um, I'd never seen this movie in widescreen before, because I'd only ever watched it on VHS, and uh, there's not much of a difference. But I will say this movie, is, is, this is a gorgeous film. Yeah, it's the, sh- the, it's, the, the, the setting, uh, the yeah. location shooting is brilliant. In, in, in the Pacific Northwest. And um, the only downside to having the Blu-ray, and it's just one of those typical, this movie was made 30 years ago, nobody expected it to be in a high-definition format, is the train dodge on the bridge. Yeah, it probably doesn't look as good as it, it did. When Now, granted, the editing is great because they cut between the different shots of the kids and anytime they show them face on with the train behind them, you know, blurry in the background, it's great. The couple of shots they have on the bridge, you can kind of tell that there's a blue screen or, you know, that they're using like rear projection or whatever they're doing to, to make it look like, you know, the train is like bearing down on them. And I was like, out of curiosity, I was like, was, is this something that, I could always see when I watched the VHS, but just never noticed or never bothered. So I popped the VHS in and watched that scene. And on the, on the tape, it's, it, it doesn't look, it's not noticeable. So it's just, but even then it doesn't take you out of the movie that much because that's such a great scene. Um, that starts really with Vern dropping the comb. <laughs> but it, it also has one of my favorite back and forths in the movie. Um, while you guys are walking halfway across the state and back, I'll be on the other side of the bridge, relaxing with my thoughts. You use your left hand or your right hand for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that line. No, it's just, it's things, I didn't have a lot of male friends when I was younger. Um, but looking at the male friends I had in my early 20s, uh, yeah, that all rang really true. There's, there's a well, we, we've and we've already talked about it too. There's a chemistry between these four that, um, and I know Reiner had them basically hang out for a couple of weeks before he started shooting, so they could get to know each other, and they could get to know the characters and stuff. And um, it, it shows that that they were, they seem like friends. Mm-hmm. In a way that doesn't seem forced. Now, um, as I mentioned, the story is is based on uh, the movie is based on a, a novella that Stephen King wrote uh, back in the very early 1980s. It was published in his collection called Different Seasons, which is still in print. Um, and just just to give you an idea of how insanely good Different Seasons is. Oh, yeah. There are, there are four novellas. Uh, there's The Body, which is the third of the fourth. The fourth is called The Breathing Method, which is this odd sort of... almost like a... a I can't even describe it. It's, it it's, it's, a, it's a shorter one, and it's this sort of... It almost belongs to like a horror anthology show from, from way back when. But yes. the first two in the book are called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, 
which was made into the 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption, um, and is very good in itself as well. And then um, Apt Pupil. Yeah. Which, out of the three that were adapted, Apt Pupil is the one that was better than the movie. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of funny because I, I think I think Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption of what I read because I only started reading it. It's a long. Uh, it's it's a long one and and I ran out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, as I started reading it and the movie, kind of like run parallel to me. Like yeah. I can appreciate both for the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel um, about it. I started reading Apt Pupil, and I'm like, this is so much better than what Brian Singer did. And it's nothing against Brad Renfro. It's nothing against Magneto. It's nothing against Senator Kelly. Mm-hmm. It's nothing against uh, Ross. <laughs> um, you know, it's nothing against anybody in it. It's just, I don't think... I don't think Singer was at a point in his career that he could have pulled off the complexity of Apt Pupil. Now, I know he did... Uh, the Usual Suspects. Yeah. The Usual Suspects, as good of a movie as that is, one, it's mostly because of the cast he had. And once you know the ending, the entire film isn't as special. Yeah, it's it's a sixth sense sort of twist that I enjoy the movie, but you're right. No, you need like... Stephen King goes so deep and so dark with apt people. It's that... like horror, not because there is a creature possessing a car no, or it's a all... rabid dog. It's all like... psychological and the evil within us and maybe a David Fincher type. Yes, yeah, something like that. Could Somebody have could done that. Really pull that off. But yeah. the body... It's funny because I watch Stand By Me and I end up feeling melancholy but good. Yeah. Because, you know, Gordy came out on the other side. Yeah, Vern went off and had his life and Teddy, you know, is still kicking around Castle Rock and hasn't had a decent time of it. Uh, And Chris dies around the time the movie begins, Mm -hmm. which makes you think that they were friends through high school. They maybe kept in touch and now and and Chris comes out great on the other side he does all the college prep courses and he becomes a lawyer he made it and 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 and, and he dies because he gets he tries to make peace is which is what he did with his friend his peer yep. group and he yeah. gets stabbed for it whereas the the book or the novella when i finished it i was like it was a really good story I could read that again, and I got a lot out of some of the some of where he goes a little deeper into what they're thinking and all that. Mm-hmm. Especially the fact that the novella has the natural ending of what the confrontation around the body would had, which is everybody gets their ass kicked. Yes, like Gordy gets jumped, won't tell who did it. Mm-hmm. Chris gets his arm broken to the point that they have to put pins in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vern's older brother stops hitting him because he's afraid he killed him. And Teddy's just crazy. Yeah. So it's just like, so you find out what happened to them. But the thing about the novella is uh, sometimes I, I, I watch a movie and then I read the book and I'm like, oh God, the book was, was better. I liked the movie, but the book was better. Yeah. 
this was one of those cases where I love the changes they made so much. Yeah. Because Denny's more relatable in the film. Mm-hmm. His, his parents actually come off better in the film than in the story, which is kind of really scary when you think about <laughs> it. Um, and Chris and Gordy are pretty much the same. Vern and Teddy are pretty much the same. But there's the scene in the store where he's buying it, the guy's trying to rip him off. Yeah. And Gordy calls him on it. Yeah. So it's just like one of these things where I I just like how the movie went better, but it's not that the novella was bad. The only thing the novella does that I was just a little turned off with is you go into one of his short stories. Yes. Short stories. You go into two of them. Cause wh- Stud City. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what becomes the vomit scene. Yeah. And the vomit scene... The vomit scene, the way he does it, it's it's King. I think King is just experimenting with things. Yeah. And and he's experimenting with being metatextual at a time when being metatextual was not very common. And um, it's not something he did very often. And when he transitioned, the segue from the campfire story into the vomit story and out of the vomit story works. The other thing... Stud City, which is this sort of weird crime noir thing, I it takes me out of the novella almost it, completely. And then, I don't know so why it's there. The the story itself is very much this. It's Gordy working through the feelings he has about his own family. Yeah, through this guy f- having sex with a girl. Yeah, and that we we get we get a lot of Kingisms in that scene where yes. he's describing. You know, the guy naked and the girl naked, mm-hmm. blood on the sheets because she was a virgin. Yeah. So he drops and the then, C word a couple of times, yeah. And it's just it's just one of those things where once we get out of it, Gordy starts talking about the story. Yeah. And it's like, Steve, I really appreciate what you're going through here. This is a brilliant insight into your mind as a writer. Can we get back to the kids? Yeah. Well and, I kinda wanna get back to the kids. And King, um, King reportedly saw this movie and said at the time that it was one of the it was like the best anybody had ever done adapting anything he ever written. Well, see, that wasn't saying much because Carrie is enjoyable, Cujo is okay, Christine's just funny to watch. I'm yeah. sorry, I don't care. And and, and we all know that S- Stephen King hates The Shining, the Coop and film. with good reason because. That was one of those movies where I had seen that movie a thousand times as a kid. Yeah, I kind of had a twisted upbringing. I saw that movie a thousand times. It was on TV a lot, though. No, we we, we watched it on HBO. Yeah, it was on on a lot. So there was the moment where I looked at my mom and went, why is that guy guy dressed like a dog doing that? She goes, I'll tell you when you're older. Um, But I read the book. And the book is so much better at talking about the psychology of Jack Torrance. Mm-hmm. And it's not that Nicholson or anybody put, puts in a bad performance. It's just the book was better. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've never seen The Dead Zone. I've never read The Dead Zone. I've you know, it's, it's kind of funny. When, when, when I was prepping for this episode, I, I, I went on eBay because paperback books on eBay are, like, super freaking cheap. Yeah. Uh, that that's the used bookstore of the 21st century. I got the hardcover on eBay for cheap. 
I just so, tried to track down the the cheapest edition I could find, and the hardcover was like dirt cheap. So I and I, and I had the book out. Now this is kind of funny because my wife knows everything about me. She really does. I mean, I've I've held nothing back from this woman, and she's just like she looks at the book and she goes, "Why are you reading Stephen King?" I was like, "I like Stephen King," and it's true. Stephen King is one of the few authors that I. Follow, that, that I have read a lot of his work and liked it mm-hmm. enough to recognize Kingisms. Yes, through, you know, from one thing to another. She's like, I've never seen you read that. I go, Don't you remember a couple years ago when I got it off of eBay and read that? You know, at night. She goes, Oh yeah, I kind of remember that. I was like, Yeah, I like Stephen King, and it was just like one of those moments where after being together for almost seventeen years, mm. we could still have that moment where she's just like, You like that? Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's true, because I wasn't the big reader as a kid. My sister Jane was. Mm-hmm. Uh, annoyingly so. Uh, it's why I still have never read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, just out of spite at this point. Because she always <laughs> gave me a hard time for reading comics. Because she read real books. There are certain uh, movies I've never seen out of spite. So I understand where you're coming so, from. But when I was becoming a teenager, she had like everything Stephen King had ever done. So I would poach those and read them and really mm-hmm. enjoy them. I read Shining when I was like in the 10th grade. I read It when the movie came out. And let, me so tell you, let me tell you, for a 15-year-old reading that book and getting to the end, <laughs> that's... We don't that's, talk about the ending of it. You don't t- yeah, it's just like one of those things. Uh, Cracked uh, did, a, did an article years ago where they're like uh, endings to books that were never in the film version. I go, if it's not on this list, I'm lighting somebody on fire. <laughs> God. Um, although what's what's interesting, speaking of it and the body, uh, they're only a few years away from each other because the body's first. Yeah. The idea for it had been germinating for a number of years as, as, as writers, this tends to happen with writers. Um, he, he has even said, I just watched the, uh, mini series version of 11, 63 that was done with James Franco, uh, which is good. The book's much better. Uh, but apparently King had had the idea for that book years before he wrote it. He just back in the seventies, he just was like, I just was not ready to write it then. But, it has a premise of young kids in the probably 50s. Around, in the 50s probably around the same age as these kids but instead of going on this 12-year-old boy type of adventure and i didn't have crazy adventures like this when i was 12 but we would try to want to get into some shit just because our parents weren't around and you know like let's go exploring or let's do this or that but these kids are in it are experiencing like horror beyond anything and etc so he takes it to a much darker place and he goes into his usual horror genre but there is a lot of similarity between um these four and the the the, the kids the, from it the yeah. kids from it and and that's not a mistake you know you can see where he's seeding things he's experimenting with things and what reiner did and the screenwriter and then reiner did was come in and trimmed all of the fat yeah they, in a way that and and then and then crafted this film in a way that just is unbelievable. So yeah, because I like I said, I get to the end of the, the movie and I'm like melancholy, but I feel kind of nostalgic. You know, mm-hmm. even though I didn't grow up in the fifties, I got done with the body and I went. It's an interesting introspection on somebody's childhood. Yeah, it's a and messy... it's kind of cl- cold and clinical almost. 
this. Yeah, it, the body is as messy in its storytelling as it is in its ending. That's that a stand by me went for the full ending that the body has, where he really gets into the details of everything that had happened to all the people afterward. Um, the movie would have kind of fell apart there. Like Reiner needed to end it and wrap it up the way he, Reiner needed to wrap it up in a bow. In and, a way that he and, does. and it ended so beautifully because it's it's um, Dreyfus at his old ass computer. <laughs> the green letters on the yeah, and he's just like you know we were kids you know blah blah blah, and then he sits back and you hear his own kids come. Dad, are we going to the pool? And it's just like oh, he's got kids. Yeah, and he's and he's like and he's a good dad. Yeah, and and the, his kid has this one line too. It's something like he always gets that way when he's writing, which I loved. Yeah, there there, there was a there was an interview with one of Michael Crichton's kids mm-hmm. uh, around the time Jurassic Park came out, and they said if Crichton would get this look on his face, they would ask him every question they would need to ask him for the next two months, because once he got that look, he was in novel. <laughs> it's like when I. It's like when a new Laurel K. Hamilton novel comes out and I hand it to my wife where I ask her everything I need to know for the next two days. She's <laughs> going to be up for 36 hours reading. Can't talk reading. Yeah, so, but um, no, it's just, it's such yeah. a great book. It's yeah. such a great, I mean, a great the movie. Film, yeah. And um, just to, to briefly end on talking about the soundtrack, because there's, there's something about this. I was, I was, um, I had a note, I had a note, because um, I had a note in my notebook here it says Dreyfus's Gordy is also Kurt Henderson from American Graffiti mm-hmm. and Kurt Henderson at the end of American Graffiti when you find out what happened to all of them you know as, as he's flying off to college you find out that you know uh, Ron Howard's character is an insurance salesman and Paula Matt's character was killed by a drunk driver and and uh, Richard Dreyfus his character is a writer living in Canada and so I started to draw the direct night. Now the math doesn't add up because uh, American Graffiti takes place in 62. This takes place in 59. Uh, you know, he would have been 18 and 12. So the math doesn't add up. But if you're going by era, you could, if you want to have a nice afternoon and evening of watching Nostalgia Fest movies from the 70s and 80s, start with Stand By Me, watch American Graffiti, then for the heck of it, throw in Diner, yes, which is a which is another movie that's just like so great, and then wrap it up with the Big Chill, and you basically have our parents' entire nostalgia trip <laughs> planned out for you. And I, I, it sounds snarky to say that, but I totally would do that because I was just like I just started thinking of movies like this, um, where you know graffiti graffiti is a movie I'm going to cover eventually, and graffiti is is you know there's another movie out there that is not in this sort of realm, but, but as American graffiti set in the seventies, which is days and confused, but, but there's this nostalgia aspect to this and the soundtrack reflects it really well. Cause the soundtrack, the soundtrack is, um, uh, it's one, two, three, it's about nine songs, all from the very late fifties. Um, what we very much associate as quote fifties music, yeah. uh, they are listing in order and, um, and you can buy this, soundtrack on iTunes because I went and downloaded it from iTunes uh, Every Day by Buddy Holly Let the Good Times Roll by Shirley and Lee Come Go With Me and Whispering Bells by the Dell Vikings Get a Job by the Silhouettes 
Yakety Yak by the Coasters, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lewis, and uh, Stand By Me, the song that gives the movie its title by Banny King. Uh, there's four other movies. F- there's four other songs that are listed in the movie, but they're not on the soundtrack. There's Rock and Robin, Book of Love, um, Hushabye, and I'm trying to read my handwriting. Come softly to me. The last two I don't know. You're very forgetting well. Lollipop. Oh shit! Did I? Oh, Lollipop and Mr. Lee are in there too. Why did I not write those down? Because Lollipop was one of the best things oh, for, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. for the actors because they do the little pop thing yes, with their finger that I could never do as a kid and it bothered me. Yeah, I that. can't do that either. Hey, we're back here with the boss man, Bob Cormier. From the racks and stacks, it's the best on wax. It's the Cornettes with Lollipop. And then Mr. Lee by the uh, by the Bobettes. And um, there was a video for Stand By Me, too, where uh, River Phoenix was playing guitar mm-hmm. with Benny King and looking much older than he did in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> I'll post that if I, if I remember. I'll post that to the show notes so everybody can watch it. Um, I don't know about you, but like, like I said, my mom was probably about the age of these characters in 1959. My dad was a couple of years older, but this is basically the the music that you know they were probably listening to as kids. And then when we we were kids, when I wasn't being tortured by the soothing sounds of Light FM, um, it was WCBS 101.1 out of New York City, which was the oldies station. Uh, and Cousin Brucey was one of the DJs, and he is now currently. Unless unless he's retired or, or he, for all I know he's dead by now, but um, right. cousin Brucey is on Sirius XM on one of the oldies stations because I'll tune in every once in a while. But I got kind of my education in pop music through that station because my mom would listen to it, and then through like tapes like this because my mom had the tape, my parents had the tape, and my sister and I absconded at one point. My gateway for this was Great Balls of Fire mm-hmm. because it's in Top Gun. And Top Gun in 86 was my favorite movie. And I had Yeah, this... we're going to have to talk about that at some yeah. point. Yeah. I, 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 I'm seriously trying to get with Shag and Stella so we could stage an intervention. And I had the soundtrack. And on the original cassette version of the soundtrack that I had, Great Balls of Fire was not on there. Now, I have the deluxe edition that they put out back in the late 90s on CD that has that it has uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding and um, the unnecessary extended remix version of the Kenny Loggins song that plays during the uh, volleyball scene but um, but so Great Balls of Fire was on this so I could listen to this and hear Great Balls of Fire and I knew Yakety Yak and I knew a couple of the other songs. And over time, like when I downloaded this about a year and a half ago, because it was like at the time, I think it was like seven ninety nine or something on iTunes. I was like, this is amazing. Cause like I had forgotten how much I liked all these songs. I mean, I absolutely love come go with me and whispering bells. It are two of my favorite songs of that era. And I would pair this with like the big chill soundtrack. Yeah. It, it's stuff funny. like that. It's, it's funny. Um, 
because my, my dad loves oldies, uh, but my dad loves like all kinds of music. It's really strange. Uh, that man will go on about Freddie Mercury like he was God. Dude, I um, listened to so much Queen when I was in high school. <laughs> so, but dad growing up on military bases over in Europe, I think his only real connection to the States, because he didn't have the television shows, I think the only real connection he had was the music. So he and my mom, my mom loves Buddy Holly. Like every day came on and she kind of lit up in the theater. Oh, cool. Like it was just, it was just something that made her so happy because again, it's probably something reminding her of when she was a kid and this music was popular music. So I, I, I went through a period from 1991 to early 1992 where I did nothing but listen to the oldie station hmm. that was a, that was in Allentown. And that gave me an appreciation for this type of music that it makes me, it's makes watching films set back in that time, just a little more enjoyable to see what music they're going to pepper, pepper in. Uh, I think great balls of fire has the best introduction in this movie. Cause they, <laughs> they cut, they cut to a shot of a, of a mailbox. mailbox. You see the ba- baseball bat slam through it, and the song starts. Yeah, mailbox baseball. Yeah, and and most of the songs, most of the songs are just slightly background. Like you said, lollipop is, um, they're singing it, the kids are singing it, and they play it over that. And, uh, but it it's, it's in some cases it's almost like ambiance. Yeah. That it's just being like they have. It's obviously they have like a portable radio with them or something, and and you can hear it here and there. And it was the iPod of the day. It was, <laughs> and the thing was, I went and I just I looked up the soundtrack on Wikipedia, and all the songs, except for I think Mr. Lee, which I knew as well because I heard used to hear it on the oldie station and had their own Wikipedia pages, and all these songs are like top ten, top yeah. twenty. This isn't. This isn't somebody picking like deliberately obscure stuff because he wants to show off how much he knows about music from that era or conversely can only get the rights to, you know, those certain songs. Because um, uh, we mentioned the Wonder Years earlier. One of the things that kept the Wonder Years out of circulation for years was the music rights. Yeah. China Beach, which I have on DVD finally, is another show. There are a number of shows from from the 90s and the 2000s that used a lot of music that the music rights well, are the hang up. Go earlier than that, The Greatest American Hero. Yeah. A lot of those episodes aren't like I remember them. Mhm. Yeah. So, so Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, but this 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 it's a nice it's a nice introduction to the music of this era and it's 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 a fun i mean it's a short soundtrack none of these songs are more than 4 minutes i think stand by me is the longest song on the album and i, I don't even i don't i don't know if it's even 4 minutes long it's um it's sadly it's a song that i probably will listen to the least even though it's a gorgeous song mainly because i've heard it overused in commercials that especially lately, like my local power company has been running these um we're here for you, we keep the lights on type of power commercials the commercials, and they've been playing stand by me, 
Yeah, like, it's one of those songs that I'm just. It, it's kind of like "Stand by Me" and um, "Lean on Me." Yeah, are like tied for songs that I'm now sick of mm-hmm. because of the movies that came out with them as the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like the one song of the soundtrack that I don't like. However, I love how they use it in the score. Oh yes, the score is. And the score is, and so many uh, music supervisors on films or composers on music supervisors on films mostly can can take cues from this movie and many movies of its era and before then. The score is only there when it needs to be. Yeah. So many movies today are overscored. The music oh, might be great, but. Um, it, it, Think of a recent movie that we have both seen that you have referred to using the phrase dumpster fire. Talk about scenes that are overscored. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's uh, one of my favorite uh, columnists and podcasters, James Lilacs, refused to it as musical rhubarb. Whereas when, when they want to have the sound of a crowd... There's yeah. a. It's not actually what they do, but they just get a bunch of people together saying rhubarb, 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 rhubarb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's different that... tones, and that's what most music in movies these days are. Yeah, it's 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 musical. It's not there to denote a theme. It's not there to play up an emotion. It's there to just be in the background. Yeah, and when they use this. Um... I think it's like right at the beginning of the movie, actually, like right at the main credits, and the you hear the, the standby, the tune of "Stand by Me" played on like one or two instruments as Richard Dreyfus starts his starts brings us into the into the into the movie. The, you're right; that's how well it's used. Where where they don't they don't overplay it. They just, they just put enough of it in there, and they do it very lightly. Um. And they have a lot of scenes where they let the scene speak for itself, mm-hmm. which doesn't get used. I mean, they like I, I said earlier, this movie's gorgeous to look at. They took advantage of the location shooting in a way that, um, I mean, the town looks like a real town. It doesn't look like uh, now. Granted, Pleasantville was an artificial creation because it's for the movie, but it's not a, or it doesn't look like Hill Valley. You know, Hill Valley. Hill Valley in the Court Square and Back to the Future looks like a set because it is a set. I took the tram through that set on the Universal Backlot, and I, re- I remember watching the ghost of my in-laws watch everything under the sun. They used to watch the Ghost Whisperer with Jennifer Love Hewitt, and cameraman. I'm. Uh, I know. And at one point on one episode, she's walking through the center of town, and I looked at and I looked at my wife, and I looked at the thing, and I'm like, "That's the clock tower from Back to the Future." She's like, "No," I said, "Yeah, it is, because it's on the Universal backlot." I took the tour when I was in high school. <laughs> but it's so so. But this this because they shot it on location. It just looks like a location. It looks like every kind of. It looks like a crappy hick Ponunk town out in the middle of nowhere in, in Oregon um, or, or in anywhere in some rural community. Uh, and they didn't have to do much to it to make it look like they didn't have to set dress it too much. And they didn't overdo it with that. And the kids dress in the way that 12 year old kids look like 
they were trans. You know, and and I think that the feel of this movie does not date it in the sense that it looks like a fake 50s movie or that it looks like an 80s movie that's set in the 50s. Which the 80s yeah. gets away with more than, say, the 70s did. Yeah. Or the early 80s did. Because, like, you'd have, like, retro movies that are set in previous time periods, but everybody's makeup looked like it was out of 1978. With the eyeliner and the eyeshadow and everything, so... um. But no, uh, last thoughts uh, on this because uh, I know we're gonna we're gonna both wrap up in a minute. Uh, your last thoughts, and I, I think we would both heartily recommend that anybody who has yeah. never seen this movie go see this movie. Um, you know, uh, and I feel like I've rediscovered this film because I hadn't watched it in a number of years, just out of life <laughs> being what it is. I don't get to sit down and watch movies a lot. Um, and it was a real treat to sit down with this movie and 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 just enjoy it. Um, what about you? What, coming out of this, uh, any any last thoughts? There are a few movies that I can watch over and over and over again and not get sick of them. And I think this was one of them. I think I, I think just between the cast, the directing, the 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 sets, the locations, the music, it's just like one of those things where Rob Reiner just really nailed every aspect of this film. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a, a frame of it. I really wouldn't. There's nothing in this film that I would, that I would want to do different. I don't need to see any additional scenes from this film. No, I, I, it's just, it's just so perfect in what it is. So, uh, just, I, like you said, I cannot recommend it enough. It is so good. It's um and and if you're looking for it, like I said, uh, it might pop. I think it can pop up on Amazon streaming. It, it might pop up on a streaming service somewhere, but the DVD, the Blu-ray are both readily available on the cheap. And uh, for all you know, it's on demand somewhere, or it's or it, it'll run on cable. So if if you have the opportunity to go check it out, I would. Uh, Mike, before I let you go, please tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, you can find me over at Views from the Long Box at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. There I talk about comics and whatever's popping in my head. Of the four, as I used to say, the four-colored world of comics, which is something I would never say again in an introduction. Uh, also, every Tuesday night at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time, you can hear me live over at the Superman homepage on the very appropriately named Radio KAL Live. Uh, where Steve Eunice and I talk about the latest and greatest in comics uh, or in Superman. And if you want to hear some older stuff, you can, uh, hopefully Jeffrey and I will be getting back to this very soon. Uh, there's FCTC from Crisis to Crisis, which you can find over at Fortress of Bailitude and over on the Two True Freaks Network. We, You can hear Scott Gardner and I talking about the JSA on Tales of the Justice Society of America. And you can hear Scott... Chris Honey and I, well, and I talking about comics on Comics Monthly Monday. All right. And thanks again for coming on. I, you well, were, thanks for asking me. You really were the first person I thought of uh, when I when I thought of doing this episode. So, um, well, well, we had the same childhood, so that makes perfect sense. Exactly. Um, and as for me, I will be back in September with another episode about something that I have not planned out. Um, Origin Story should be starting up in a few weeks, so check and so be on the lookout for that and check the blog for uh, essays or anything else that I feel like posting. Until then, thanks for listening. 
and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Dum, 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 dum.